is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Governor David Ige returned to his old stomping grounds yesterday to meet with us. We sat in the dugout at a ballpark in Newtown to reflect on his time in office. In just a few short weeks, he'll be back in his old neighborhood in the home that he left when he was elected governor. He will have to go back to hunting for parking like everyone else as the perk of a chauffeur disappears. The governor shares his home is undergoing renovation, and it may not be 100% complete uh, when he leaves office. Yes, apparently the governor is caught up in the backlog for building permits from the city and county, like everyone else. Coming off the election, he says his lieutenant governor, Josh Green, must now step up to the plate. And while they share some common goals, how to build a stadium and develop the area is not one of them. Green's office says he's asked the governor to pause his efforts to get the uh, University of Hawaii to build the sports facility, but the governor is pushing ahead, preferring to focus on common goals. I'm excited because we share a lot of the same core values, so I'm certain he'll be looking forward to continuing the things that worked and making things better for those things that, that didn't. Well, we're sitting here in this dugout, you know, and the game's almost over. <laughs> You know, there seemed to be a sense of urgency to try and wind things up with, with some of the projects. You know, I mean, we're up here. We're not too far from the stadium. We've got Pearl Harbor out here. You've been through a lot with, with Red Hill and with the pandemic. But what was driving you toward the end of, to make these decisions about some of these projects? I think it's really, you know, my commitment to really work to the very last day. December 5th is the last day in office, and we want to make sure that we're uh, doing all the things to continue to serve the community. You know, just checked on status. We work to get the tax rebates out. I know that many people have already received it. I received my tax rebate last week. We're down to the last couple of tens of thousands that are in the process of getting through, but we definitely will have gotten everyone who filed a tax return, they should be getting their rebate in the next week or so. Clearly, we wanted to fulfill our responsibilities on Red Hill, making sure that we can hold the Navy accountable. You know, the facility is 75 years old and it had a purpose during World War II. But clearly, I think the Navy finally recognized that the world has changed. And having a central strategic storage for all fuel on the planet in one location just doesn't make any sense anymore. So we're really working, as you know, we were successful in unpacking the fuel lines, which is the first step. They're going to be making repairs so that we can defuel safely. We've come through a tough time economically, you know, with this uh, pandemic. I know it was a very hard thing to tell tourists, please don't come. You know, as you come to a close here, you know, reflect on that. I knew that it was the right thing to do. We had a very highly infectious disease that was spread through face-to-face encounters. And remember at the very beginning of the pandemic, we didn't fully understand the virus. We didn't know how deadly it might be. We had no treatment. We had no vaccines. You know, we really started from nothing. And I knew that we had to stop Trans-Pacific travel to keep our community healthy and safe. And, you know, Hawaii has been evaluated as having the best COVID response of all 50 states. And I'm really proud of the community response. You know, Catherine, you know, you've been engaged in in the media for a long time. Whenever there is a crisis or a disaster, our community really steps up. And, you know, I'm proud of the fact that many in our community didn't ask, you know, why are you infringing on my individual rights? Many in our community said, how can I help? You know, and that's why we had the best response in the country. You know, I I know at the time it was very hard with all the restrictions. And I think your mom and your mother-in-law were at the nursing home nearby. And it was hard because you couldn't see them either. 
absolutely you know and it was hard as a son not being able to visit my mom in the care home but at the same time the last thing i wanted to do was visit her and get her sick so everyone in our community had to make sacrifices in order to get through this pandemic and people were willing to do it and in every single aspect of the covid response hawaii has proven to be uh, amongst the leaders in the country, even in terms of nursing homes. You know, we had amongst the lowest infection rates in, in nursing homes around the country. We just got the public school report that our students did better than most. In fact, Hawaii was again ranked number one in terms of the smallest learning loss during the pandemic. So I'm really just proud to be governor of Hawaii because we weren't fighting about individual rights. It was about what is best for our community. Everyone was willing to make the sacrifices and the outcome um, shows that when we work together, we can do great things. You know, as we sit here at this dugout, you know, you'd mentioned that your kids, you know, used to, to play ball here. And we all worry, right? We want our kids to go off and do well and get job experience, come back home, be able to afford to buy a house. And I know inflation is just on everybody's minds right now. You've just come back from Japan. I know Governor-elect Josh Green says he's going to go back to Japan uh, right away just to try and soften the blow in the event we have a recession next year. You know, just talking with the state economist and I just completed a bunch of interviews with the rating agencies. As you know, we floated $800 million in bonds to keep our construction projects going. But we know that Japan will come back. But as I was there two weeks ago, a week ago, it's a triple whammy for the traveler coming from Japan. First, it's the yen, and the yen has become very weak. And so it's a bargain for those who in Hawaii who want to travel to Japan. So I certainly would encourage that. If you were thinking about going to Japan, it's the perfect time to go now because everything's on sale. But the reverse of that is that traveling to Hawaii is very expensive for Japanese visitors. In addition, because of the war in Ukraine, fuel prices are high and the Japanese traveler will have to pay a fuel surcharge on their ticket here. And then just talking with the airlines and the tour companies in Japan, eating in Japan is a whole lot more affordable than it is in Hawaii. And so even if a Japanese visitor were to make the trip here and get a hotel, you know, the hotels are expensive because of the weekend. And then just eating, you know, a regular plate lunch from their perspective suddenly becomes a very ex expensive undertaking. We did hear that they were complaining that the yen, you know, they're paying like $8 for a musubi, a spam musubi. It's yeah. a lot. Yeah, absolutely. So I am certain that the Japanese traveler will come back and they're starting to come back. You know, we've been talking about this pivot um, in tourism and attracting the tourists that we want. Uh, in speaking with the executives at ANA and Japan Airlines, we're seeing a lot of that. You know, the first class and business class seats, which are the more affluent travelers, are all pretty much full. Uh, the economy class seats are the ones that are not being filled right now. So we are seeing some of that, you know, the visitors from Japan who are coming are those who can afford. They're willing, more willing to take tours and do activities than the lower income uh, travelers. So we are confident that we'll begin to build the Japanese visitor back all of our partners in Japan are projecting to increase travelers through the first two quarters of next year. And they really expect to be back to pre-pandemic levels by the end of next year, so 2023. You've just come from a meeting with the Department of Hawaiian Homelands. Your concerns about, you know, where we go with the money that we've uh, provided them, uh, you know, to get housing for Native Hawaiians, where are we at on that? You know, we feel really good about where we're at at this point in time. You know, the commission has gone through. It's amazing how many 
unsolicited proposals they had, people being creative about how to help accelerate um, homesteading and being able to deliver uh, leases to a beneficiary. So um, we're at a good place. They feel like they've gotten very, very good proposals. Um, they're prioritizing. You know, we have worked very hard to have the full range of options available for Native Hawaiian beneficiaries. You know, for the most part, yes, the lease is the gold standard and we want to be able to give beneficiaries either a homestead lease or an agricultural or grazing lease. We've also been able to expand the option. So we created a subsistence a farming lease for those who don't want to go commercial, but want to get connected to the land. And that allows us to award leases for one acre or less, a, a half an acre. You know, we have approved uh, rental projects. And so beneficiaries, we, we definitely don't want them to be homeless and on the street. So being able to offer them affordable rentals and I think most importantly, support them with financial management and, and help them uh, begin to save so that they can eventually afford a mortgage uh, is part of the program as well. We will continue our conversation with Governor David Ige as he reflects on what he's happy and sad about as he comes to the end of his term. We'll be right back. They paid paradise and put up a fucking lie With a pink hotel, a boutique, and a swinging hot spot Support for HBR comes from the Honolulu Chamber Music Series. The Dover Quartet performs Beethoven's Great Fugue and Mendelssohn's Quartet No. 5, November 18th at UH's Orvis Auditorium, honoluluchambermusicseries.org. Aloha! This is Steve Kerwood, host of Living on Earth. Each week we discuss the challenges of climate disruption, but we also look for solutions and ways to cope and thrive. And it brings us special joy to showcase the wonders of nature and the spectacular biodiversity of the planet we call home. So join me tonight at 6.30 here on HPR One. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from HMSA, committed to helping build healthy communities. Whether at work or at play, care is available wherever and whenever needed. Learn more at hmsa.com. return to our conversation with Governor David E. Game. He says his one real regret is that he couldn't do more to help solve our homeless crisis, though he felt his administration did make progress tweaking programs and helping families with children. Family homelessness is down more than 50%, and overall, homelessness is down 25% from the peak. So we are making progress, but as you know, we continue to see homeless individuals, and they've really spread out all across the state. We see them in virtually every community, living in parks or in nooks and crannies all around the community. Our focus on housing first and really getting them off the streets and into affordable, supportive housing is the secret to ending homelessness. You know, Catherine, we continue to have social workers go to homeless individuals and offer them services and offer them to move off the streets and go into a shelter temporarily at first and then into permanent housing. But many of them refuse to do that. So, you know, we are improving mental health services and addiction treatments and those kinds of programs because we know that many of them do suffer mental illness or have addiction challenges. And until you can treat those, really hard for them to recognize that they need help and so we are making progress there's a lot of areas that we need to improve but we have the programs and we know what works so it is about trying to find ways for the homeless to accept help I think is 
the one for especially the hardcore homeless they really choose to be on the streets rather than are there because of only the circumstances you know we're just a stone's throw from the stadium do you think there is going to be some resolution before you leave on october 5th i know there's one more stadium authority meeting but what's to stop them from letting the clock run out and not having uh build a stadium you know i've talked with enough members of the authority to know that they finally understand what i've been saying that the legislature only appropriated funds to design and build a stadium there is no resources for a public-private partnership, period, which means that if the authority doesn't move forward, then nothing will happen until the legislature has a chance to try and appropriate additional monies. So I stress with the authority that, look, all I'm doing is doing what has been done and appropriated by law. There is no more money for a public-private partnership. And we have seen all across the country there hasn't been a single public-private partnership to fund a stadium in the country that has been successful. But what if UH doesn't want to play ball and they don't want to be saddled with, you know, the maintenance and managing it? Well, I mean, I do think that it's about recognizing that this is a community asset and it needs to be supported. We know that we can do better in terms of generating revenue. But what our studies have shown is that it can't be uh, entirely self-sufficient. You know, there's not enough revenue that you can generate off of a stadium that will pay for all the maintenance involved. Just like the convention center, you know, and for the longest time, the deficit in operating the convention center was growing. But we did award a new contract a couple years ago, and the private company did a much better job of uh, filling the, the facility, generating revenues, and has really reduced the deficit, the operating deficit that we've seen. So I do think that a similar thing could happen with the stadium, but to think that it can fund the maintenance and operations by itself is not a reality. Well, so far, UH hasn't said, yeah, we'll do it. You know, they're gonna continue on with Ching Field. Is the deal dead or not? No, I mean, I do think that they recognize, and obviously they need to have a stadium in order to have a Division I football program. And the community has spoken, they want a Division I football program. So I think it's about aligning all the partners involved, the stadium authority, the DBED director. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's really about having state employees, somebody put in charge of it so they can run with it and make it happen. But you believe that's going to happen before you we're, leave? We're working very hard to have that happen. I think the stadium authority better understands the law and certainly recognizes that public-private partnership is not funded. So they are anxious to move it forward as well. And then with the HTA marketing and management contract, is there going to be a resolution before you leave? Yes, we definitely are working on a resolution, and we, I'm hopeful that we will get an agreement before the end of my term. You know, when times were really hard, I don't know, did you find yourself turning to someone in particular for advice to navigate some of these things, whether it was the missile crisis or, or, uh, or COVID? No, I mean, I think, you know, it's a family first and foremost, right? So I do appreciate Don having to deal with all of the challenges that I've faced as governor. You know, she has always been supportive. And it really is about friends and family that are unconditional in their support and trust that we're making the best decisions on behalf of the community. You know, even in the early days of this COVID pandemic, you know, there were many who disagreed with the actions that we were taking, but many in our community supported it, and that's always reassuring. I just focus on trying to understand the challenges before us as best as I can, and I will always take the action that will serve the community in the best way possible. And I do trust that, that things will work through in the end. I remember when Ben Cayetano left office, he was worried about driving again. 
you know, he said, I think one of the perks was, or maybe you said it was the perks, is, you know, to look for parking and, you know, you have a driver, but I don't know. <laughs> well, I mean, I do think that that's, um, yes, I haven't really driven in at least four years. The last time I drove was when my kids graduated from college and we went off and that's the last vacation I took six years ago. But I haven't driven a car in six years and I'm confident it's like riding a bicycle, you know, that it happens, but it will take some time to get used to driving again. And then obviously having to park the car will be the challenge. Anything you want you want to just share with us just about, you know, as you get back in the neighborhood and, and you know, I mean, you stopped off at Dave's Ice Cream, right? So you know the places. Uh, absolutely. And I, you know, we're in the process of re renovating our home uh, and we have our fingers crossed that things will be completed. Uh, we still are working on waiting on a permit for a portion of the renovations. And so I, I'm certain that it won't be completely completed uh, at the end of my term. So you're um, but are you stuck in the, in the permit hell? I <laughs> am stuck in the permit okay. uh, queue. <laughs> You know, for uh, replacing flooring and, and that kind of stuff, those permits have been approved. Uh, but there's some work in the house that, um, that needs a, a different permit, and we'll be waiting for that. But I do look forward to moving back home. You know, when you're living in town, the routine gets changed uh, totally. So I look forward to being out here and being able to stop at Dave's Ice Cream every once in a while. and you know, getting back to uh, Gyotaku. You know, I'm concerned about Anna Miller's and the fact that they might not uh, open or restore all the hours and all the other places that we regularly ate at. Certainly looking forward to getting back out here and, and being able to get into that routine of being part of this community. And Governor David Ige and uh, First Lady Don Ige will likely be home for a quiet Christmas holiday as their adult children will be traveling a different pace for sure, one that will take some time getting used to. It remains to be seen whether Ige will strike out on the Aloha Stadium and the White Tourism Managing Contract or hit a home run. Tomorrow, the country will be celebrating Veterans Day as part of the effort to honor veterans and their experiences this past June. StoryCorps Military Voices Initiative spent time on the Big Island and Oahu to collect stories from local vets. All were invited to participate, whether it was to share their stories of service or marginalization or somewhere in between. One of the participants was Hawaii Island resident Helen Naho'opii, who served in the Army in the 1970s. She shared a very personal story of how she continues to heal from a sexual assault she experienced while serving. Here she is talking with her friend, Liz Ambrose, about her life leading up to enlistment. Helen Louise Naho'opii. Um, my name is Liz Ambrose. Uh, today's date is June 10th, 2022. We're at the Lyman Museum in Hilo, Hawaii, and uh, she's my friend. Pohoiki by the Ahala Nui Ponds on the Big Island of Hawaii is where I like to call my childhood place. My fondest memories there was that it was remote and off the grid back in 1963 during a time when a lot of modern subdivisions were being built in that area of the Puna district. What are some other memories that stand out from your childhood there? Well, being a creative child, you know, I held a real reverence uh, hanging out in the tropical forest of the Puna area. Um, used to pick Miley and lots of flowers for Aloha Fridays, lay making. I used to eat a lot of guava, build tree houses with my siblings in that really dense mango grove back along the coast. And there was a 20 foot long lava tube, which was so beautiful. It was filled with a warm brackish water that I would climb down into and then just kind of hang out there. As a family, we usually found joy in just sort of weekend drives to go up and watch the lava flow trickle across paved highways. It was just a childhood thing. And I thought every child grew up that way. Who are some of the most important people in your life? Well, I believe that my mother was a really uh, pioneer and uh, interesting person. She was a former chemist 
at Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati, Ohio. And she left uh, an abusive situation, and she brought my three siblings and I over to Hawaii in 1963. She then met my stepfather, who I refer to him as my dad. He was this Hawaiian man, and he adopted us, and he kind of taught us the Hawaiian way, which was a lot different than the traditional American way. Our dad was this hunter-gatherer to make ends meet, so I would watch him go fishing in the mornings and hunting in the afternoons, and just overall teach us many things about Hawaii. They're both deceased now, but you know, daily, I kind of use my cultural fusion uh, my mother's industrial ways and her formal education was something that I accomplished as well. But my father's respect for the land and his sense of humor and, you know, that along with concepts like Pono, doing things right, making things correct, uh, your na'au, using your gut, your initial thought and feeling to make decisions, uh, things like that that gave me a great reverence for the Hawaiian people. You joined the Army after high school. When did you enlist? It was 1975, my last year of my senior year in high school. And my parents had to move from Hawaii because of the lack of work to Washington State. And that was the summer before my senior year. June 1975, I volunteered for three years. It was still considered the Vietnam era, however. The war had already ended. Honestly, I did not imagine that it would actually go to the front lines. As a woman, those options were not available as they are today. What do you remember about the day you enlisted? I remember at that time catching this bus from a rural town of Monroe uh, to go to Seattle where new recruits had health exams and then we were sworn in under oath uh, to serve the army. I remember this guy, it was like a big teddy bear medical examiner and uh, he started calling me private and I said yes you know yes sir and uh, the doctor gave me this list of ailments and I quickly looked over the medical concerns and I just kept checking off the boxes and he asked me are you diabetic I said no do you have any heart problems I said no he said do you have any cancer I said no dizzy spells I said yes I handed back the list and the doctor, he grunts out loud. He goes, yes, you have dizzy spells? I said, yes, occasionally, sir. And he yells back at me, well, do you wanna join the army? And I said, yes, yes, I do. He said, then you don't have dizzy spells. And he raises my answers and then he pulls out a huge stamp and he says, pass. And I was in the army. <laughs> it was just that easy. The next location uh, was to raise my right hand and swear in under oath. And I solemnly swear that I will defend the Constitution of the United States of America. You know, I was 17, and now I was a soldier in training. What are some of the reasons that you joined the Army? Well, I wanted to get away from a small town. I wanted to see more and do more, and I wanted to afford college. I wanted to learn a trade. Um, I also was seeking adventure. I hadn't been very far from my parents, and at this point, I was ready to go. Where did you serve your tour of duty? Basic training uh, was at Fort McClellan, Alabama, and my tour of duty uh, was to serve as a dental assistant at Fort Huachuca, Arizona. Do you have any memories of basic training that you want to share? Yeah, I remember one morning that I got up early with all the ladies. We had a platoon of about 15 ladies and we'd have to go out for a jog at five in the morning and it was really pitch black outside. And as our platoon of ladies uh, were listening to cadence and jogging up this long hill, I focused on this really, really very large American flag and it was lit up by a single bright light. It was such an emotional kind of moment for me when I realized this was a new beginning. I also realized that I could not turn back and that this was a serious decision, a commitment. In the distance, I could hear these other soldiers. They're like men chanting a cadence and you could hear their drill sergeant uh, calling out the cadence. And back then, this one cadence kind of st stood out for me because the words were so bizarre. 
and it was something like this. It was like, I wish that all the ladies were bricks in a pile, and I was a mason, I'd lay them all in style. Hey, hey, Mama Rita, I love my Mama Sita. Since then, I realized that I had joined a man's army. It was a man's army. In 1975, we women were an experiment for gender integration. By 1977, combined basic training for men and women became policy, which meant that men and women began integrating in the same basic training forts at Fort McClellan, Alabama. How did you imagine military life before you joined? I just thought I was uh, safe. You know, you had room and board, you had a small salary, and I wanted to get healthy. And I also wanted to be away from my family for the first time so that I wouldn't have to meet any responsibilities for my younger siblings' care. And I also wanted to travel. So it was really kind of exciting. It was like this moment of transition that I was looking forward to. That was Big Island resident and military veteran Helen O.P. talking about her life leading up to enlisting in the Army, as well as the trauma she experienced while serving. We're going to take a break and come back with the second half of her interview. continue with the story core interview between Hawaii Island resident Helen Ho'opii and her friend Liz Ambrose. Ho'opii enlisted in the Army in 1975 and served for three years. We're going to continue with the second half of her story of how she continues to heal from a sex assault she experienced while she was serving. We want to warn you that some of the descriptions she shares and strong language that she uses may be upsetting to some listeners. How did your perceptions change after serving? You know what I realized? I wasn't safe. It happened to me on a sunny day at Fort Huachuca, Arizona. The soldier was a patient at the clinic where I worked as a dental assistant. He said he was a professional photographer and he wanted to take photographs of me. He would print them and I could send them back to my parents. Back then, there were no cell phones, snap and shoots. Film was in a little black canister and labs developed those images. Photography was an art form. I agreed. I did not have a car yet, and we met in the morning and he drove. A forested area was where he pulled over. He unloaded the equipment and led me into the woods. It would take 25 years later, after a military sexual trauma counselor, Miss Sonia Fry at the VA clinic in Eugene, Oregon, had participants write letters to our perpetrators. This is an excerpt from that letter. Dear unknown soldier, after you chose to take more than just photographs that day, I used these same pictures of my youth as proof against you. Look at my 18-year-old self, my eyes, hopeful, my wide smile, beautiful, my youth, I appeared optimistic. My virginity was still intact. Less than 20 minutes later, my spirit was broken. As I refused your advances and your insults, easy, you prick tease, you whore, and then your inner rage unleashed and your physical strength frightened and overpowered me. I really began to fear for my life in those woods that day. Little did I realize your attack would have long-term consequences, far more painful than the physical violence I had experienced. I began to retaliate against authority. I held little trust in anyone. I became very manipulative. I had little to no self-esteem. I also began to drink alcohol excessively, and yes, Whereas I used to be outgoing and really social, after many years of self-doubt, 
I began to isolate. Life's been riddled with negative self-talk. I'm never pretty enough, never thin enough, I'm never smart enough, and I'm never good enough. I strive for perfection. Monthly, I experience suicide ideation, alcohol abuse, and serious bouts of depression. They continue to haunt me. I now realize you were a mere mortal, a flawed man in the old army where men were encouraged and rewarded for their machismo demeanor. Your letter of apology was received at my sister's house. She handed it to me, and I read it, and then I threw it away. Long after I'd forgotten you, you still remembered me. Was it my fear-drenched face or my pleas for you to stop that you remember in that isolated wood with that long silence on the drive back to base? Whereas I have moved on, you still harbor guilt, a victim's best revenge. But me, I only wish you peace. After the incident, I started acting out against authority. <laughs> I purchased myself a used car. It was a blue MGB convertible. I moved off base and rented a small, cheap trailer in a trailer park. One morning, with my music blaring and my top down and my hair pulled back with a bandana, it was so warm out. The breezes swept by, and as I drove up to the guard at the gate, the guard reprimanded me for being outdoors without my cap. That's what the whack uniform hat was referred to at the time. I flipped him off, and I drove away. This would be my first sign of defiance against authority. A few minutes later, sirens and military police, they pulled me over. As I exited the car, a male officer searched my body. He fondled my breast. He slid his hands up and down and inside my thighs. Once again, being a female in the military was like serving up raw meat to a hungry tiger. Back then, for a woman, the military was not safe. I was put in a jail cell and my CO, Chacon, had to come and bail me out. It was a lesson learned. My salary increase was postponed and my good conduct medal stripped. What has been difficult to communicate to your family and friends about your military service? That entire time, I never shared this with my parents for many years. I felt a lot of shame, guilt, and I felt responsible for making a choice to go into the woods that day and not to listen to my gut, my feeling, my Hawaiian na'au of how I sh should have paid attention. I also lived many years in denial as a survivor and not a victim. Do you regret your choice to serve? No. There were very positive things. I did get to travel. I learned a professional trade as a dental assistant and lab tech that I used those skills while in college. My education was paid for after my honorable discharge. Although it was so many years later, I proceeded to get the help I needed and I deserved. I know now that each of my life's experiences, they were opportunities to learn and grow. The military was just another one of those opportunities. I'm now retired from a career as a fund development director for a variety of nonprofit causes, and I have a loving husband and friends, and I live here in Waimea on the big island of Hawaii. No mud, no lotus. Thank you, Helen. 
That was Big Island resident Helen Noho'opi'i and her friend Liz Ambrose. Their interview was one of many collected by the StoryCorps' Military Voices Initiative during three days in Hilo this past June. Clips from more stories will air during Morning Edition later this year and will be archived at the Library of Congress. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art. Created with help from Hawaii's community, the immersive exhibition Rebecca Louise Law, Awakening, explores the human connection to nature. Now on view, honolulumuseum.org. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Lindsay Andriotti, founder of The Kindness Club. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about kindness, the positive virus we all want to catch. Be there. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally-based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. The Paniolo Hall of Fame recently announced its 2022 inductees. One of this year's inductees is Hawaii Island's James William Ho'opai Jr., better known to everyone as Kimo. His father and both of his grandfathers were cowboys. He got his first job as a ranch hand a few years after graduating from Kohala High School in 1978, and he's been a cowboy all his life. He's also a military veteran, having served in the Army and Hawaii National Guard for 14 years collectively. The Conversations Russell Subiano got the chance to sit down with Ho'opai to talk about his military service and life as a Paniolo. You come from a long line of cowboys. Yeah. yeah. When did you know that you wanted to follow in their footsteps? Gee, I used to watch my dad go to work in the morning, and I think it was about five or six, and just watching him walk down to the stable and see the horses coming in for them to ride that morning made my interest more. And as I remember getting older, just before graduating, he tried his best to discourage me mm-hmm. because he knew how ranch life was hard and because, you know, the pay wasn't there. Mm-hmm. we seen what he'd been through, both parents. But the love of it, if you love something, you're going to do it from your heart, everything. And that's what it ended up being for me. Was there ever another career that you're interested in or another place that you wanted to live, even for a minute? Honestly, never thought about it. Never did. Being away while I was in the service, Mm -hmm. you know, I was away from the ranch, away from Hawaii. But I was glad doing what I did, but I also missed that lifestyle. I, I really missed it, and I wanted to come home and... You know, see if I could get in the door as a cowboy or even start working on the ranch. I know that you enlisted in the Army after high school. You spent a year on the continent before returning home and joining the Hawaii National Guard, where you served for another 13 years. What was your military experience like? It was being independent. It's growing up fast because you're away from home. You don't have nobody around. It also opened my eyes to see what outside of Hawaii was. In Hawaii itself, you know, it doesn't matter the nationality, you respect everybody, all color, greed, whatever they were. But when you get up to the mainland, it's different. And I found what racism was like. I never understood it. Never seen it outside of Hawaii until I got up there. And yeah, it opened my eyes a lot. But it also helped me grow in many ways that, you know, I, as a parent, you try to set your kids up so when they do leave home, they're equipped. They'll be all right. They'll make it through whatever they're going through. And I believe my parents did that, not knowing themselves what the mainland had to offer. And just touching on your comment that you had experienced racism, when we hear about things like that happening, I think local people probably don't realize that 
when you go to the mainland and people see you, they, you know, they don't immediately know that you're that you're Hawaiian. You know, I, when when I lived on the mainland, I got mistaken for being Mexican all the time, and I I felt yeah. that discrimination that way as well. How did you handle your experience with racism? At the beginning, it was hard getting off the bus at Birmingham, Alabama, 4.30 in the morning and walking in a coffee shop and seeing a sign that says whites only. I thought it was just, you know, a sign of the past. Not knowing in 1978, it was still up because it was still strong. It really brought in my mind that I needed to understand more about racism and why and slavery and everything, what went on prior to me getting up there. So... I read a lot of books. I made myself mingle with different nationalities so I could understand. But it worked out for me yeah. because military, they, they try to break that racism, but it, it was still there. They tried every which way to try to control it and blend it in, but it, it was still, doesn't matter. It was there. What was your job in the military? What, what did you do when you were enlisted? I was the infantry. I was in the infantry. That was, it was the only thing that, you know, I, I felt like I could give back to my country. My dad couldn't go because he was injured from a young age. So he had disabilities that he couldn't qualify on going during a draft. Both grandfathers couldn't because of the same thing, broken bones or whatever, or too much kids. So they couldn't get drafted. So by me going in, I was, I got a brother which is younger than me. I figure if I get in the military, I stay in and I'll serve that much more years to give back for all the ones that couldn't make it. And almost accomplished it. <laughs> almost. Did anything from your military training, did any of that translate into ranch work? No, I, I think before I went, I had training at home. Discipline came from home. So when I got into the military, that was the biggest thing that they were looking for, was discipline. And once once you they got the discipline from you, you became an easier person to learn, to understand, and to work with. Without the discipline, it was hard for anybody to connect with the drill sergeants or whoever was in charge of you. So if anything uh, I brought back was, I think was the leadership having men under me. That was one of the biggest things because you make sure that everyone gets home. You want to make sure that whatever you're doing, the assignment that you're doing, you want to make sure that everybody makes it home, make it back to the barracks, make it back to wherever. And you want to be accountable for everybody. So their their lives is on you. If anything, I brought that back. doesn't matter where you go. You want to make sure that whoever's working with you, you make sure that they get home after work. No matter what, it's not a war, but a work day can cause injuries. You can get hurt. You can die. You can whatever. But you want to make sure as a boss, you get them home to their families. When you ask the average American what they think of when they think of ranching, they may say places like Texas or Montana or Wyoming. I don't think most people know that Hawaii has a long history with ranching and that it's been a part of our history since 1793 when Captain Vancouver brought the first cattle over. They may not even know that there are Hawaiians in the National Rodeo Hall of Fame. Why do you think Hawaiians make such great cowboys? I think it's the honesty and just their character itself. Hawaiians carry so much character and pride in what they do. They're going to give an assignment. They're going to make sure they want to do it the best that they can do. And it's just not a 100%, it's 100 and over, 100 and plus. I would say they want to make a mark saying that that guy left something that we can use in the future, like a legacy. When I look at the names in the Paniolo Hall of Fame, I see all kinds of ethnicities with roots all over the world. Do you think there's anything the world can learn from ranching about having an inclusive workforce? Yeah, you know. Working on Parker Ranch when I started, we had just about every ethnic group that you could think of. But one thing special about that group, all the old-timers spoke fluent Hawaiian, and that was their communication during work time. 
there is a new cowboy coming in. Even my age, Hawaiian wasn't used at that time when I was going to school, and it was forbidden in the house. It made me go back and learn my Hawaiian to help me understand that my history, my Hawaiian history, is important because they use it on their job. And it didn't matter what, Japanese, Portuguese, Haole, it didn't matter. Everybody spoke Hawaiian. And that is unique. And also working, the work style that we had was unique because everything that we did was passed on by generation. And today's cowboys, there's a big change in everything, ranching, lifestyle. But a lot, if you look closely, a lot is connected back to the past. Whatever that generation was taught, it went on to the next. I got two sons that cowboy today. One is a section foreman up at Parker on Mana Division, and one runs Makaniwa Ranch on Kohala Mountain. So they use a lot that was handed down from me, from my dad, from my grandfather. Till today. Well, thank you so much for your time. You know, Veterans Day is Friday. Happy Thank Veterans you. Day. Thank you very much for your service. Thank you. That was Big Island Cowboy and military veteran Kimo Ho'opai Jr. talking with HPR's Russell Sobiono. Ho'opai will be inducted into the Paniolo Hall of Fame November 19th at the Hawaii Cattlemen's Council's annual convention. That winds it up for us today. Up tomorrow, we hunt a whole stories about our island veterans. Have a story you'd like to share? Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org, and you can connect with Facebook, too. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. ¶¶